Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are starting in verse 17, Bibles, phone apps, tablets, however you consume scripture, get it ready. And as you guys are opening, let me just set the context for where we're going today, telling you about a story from my life when I was in sixth grade. Um, You see, uh, maybe you remember me in the sixth grade. I have a sixth grader now. I'm thinking about this um, pretty often. And uh, in sixth grade, this milestone happened. I, um, I got my first girlfriend, right? And uh, all my friends were telling me, Doug, you know, you're in sixth grade. You're a man now. You need a girlfriend, right? So as we all do, we listen to our friends. We're like, I, I guess I got to get a girlfriend. I don't know how this happens, but, you know, I just, you know, found the prettiest girl I could find and walked up to her and asked her to be my girlfriend. And she said, yes. And it was great. And uh, I was like, cool, man. Uh, we're boyfriend, girlfriend. See you tomorrow. And uh, this was on February 13th. Yeah. That day. So next day was Valentine's Day. And I get in the car and I'm telling my mom about it. And I realize I have to get her Valentine's presents now because, you know, we're boyfriend, girlfriend. And in 10 years, we can get married. And so, like, I just got to get on this. And so, we, you know, my mom very graciously took me to the store and we got flowers and we got a box of chocolates and I got a card and I wrote her a note on it and, you know, sealed the envelope and got it ready, put it by my book bag, went to sleep. Woke up on Valentine's Day, got my book bag, got the stuff, got in the car, got to the school, got in the car line, dropped off into the courtyard where all the kids are gathering. I walk in with this giant, you know, bouquet and, you know, chocolates and a card and I give it to her and say, happy Valentine's Day. And she says, Doug, we need to talk. She said, I'm so sorry, but I can't be your girlfriend anymore. Yeah. And she handed me back the flowers and she handed me back the note, but she kept the chocolates because <laughs> it's chocolate. You're not going to give that back. Listen, I experienced a lot of things in that moment. The thing I experienced most is that I felt rejected. And what's worse is I felt blindsided. I didn't see it coming. I didn't know girls could break up with you on Valentine's Day when you handed them flowers and a card and chocolates. I didn't know that was possible in this world, but I found out that day. I felt rejected. I felt rejected and I was blindsided by it. I I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure most of us have felt some form of blindsiding rejection before, right? Uh, Maybe it's been in a romantic relationship or maybe it was a a kind of a job situation or maybe there's something in the neighborhood or something somewhere it's gone on in your life. You you understand what I mean when you feel that sense of rejection. It just just takes your breath, breath away. But sometimes I think we also experience this kind of rejection in the church. You know, you show up for a, to a new church for the first time and you go and you sit on a row and then there's someone there who's like, you can't sit here. They're like that, those kids in Forrest Gump. Can't sit here, seat's taken, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you haven't seen that movie. There's a few of you that got that reference, right? You can't sit here and so you have to go sit on the other row and you go, okay, whatever, and you sit on the other row, but you kind of felt a little bit hurt. You're like, man, why can't I sit with you? You go to the new Sunday school class or the new group and that group just doesn't quite receive you. You know, you see some friends in the hallway, you say hi, they don't say hi back, and you just feel a sense of rejection, and you're just thinking to yourself, man, we're in the church, why, why does this happen? Well, the Apostle Paul was dealing with this very question. He's trying to figure out 
how to address this issue of rejection and humiliation in the local church. And here's the question that uh, I think he's addressing. It's the question I want us to address today. And it goes something like this. How do we as believers in Christ ensure that we receive all who God sends us? How do we as the believers in Christ who are gathered together ensure that we receive all who God sends to us? That's the question I want us to address today because I think it's important for all of us. Whether you are in a worship service or whether you're in a small group or whether you're a Christian family in a neighborhood, the reality is God's gonna be sending people your way. That's just what God does. He's gonna be drawing more people here, more people to your group, more people to your class, more people to your neighborhood, more people to our city. How do we best receive them? And how do we ensure that we receive them, that we don't hit them with this blindsiding rejection in the name of Christ? Well, let's look how Paul addresses that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting verse 17, if you want to read along with me. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then we'll skip ahead to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Church family, I want you to notice three things in this passage. The first thing I want you to notice is the location. The second thing I want you to notice is the problem. And the third thing I want you to notice is the solution. First, let's look at the location. By location, what I mean here is the context. Paul uses a particular phrase over and over again. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, there's that phrase. In verse 33, so my brothers and sisters, when you come together, over and over again in this passage, Paul is primarily concerned about a particular location, the gathered church. And he tries to cue us to this by reminding us, when you come together, there's something special that's going on. When you come together, there's something different here than goes on in the world. When you come together, when you're the body of Christ, uniting in the name of Christ, under the cross of Christ, reading the scripture of Christ, when you come together, there's something holy and you gotta pay attention to that. Now, why is this important? Well, there's another location that's going on here that's, that's bringing some tension and that's the location of Corinth. Corinth, if you guys remember, as we've been in this study all year, Corinth was a, a really interesting city in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, locationally, uh, it's right in the middle of all of these trade routes on this peninsula. You can probably see it uh, on the screen here. Uh, it's just this city right in the middle of a peninsula in the middle of major trade routes. And so everybody who's having to travel through here from east to west, north, north to south, they've got to travel through Corinth. And just from a sociological standpoint, Corinth has this really interesting history. 
Um, it basically disappeared for 100 years because there was a general uh, who won a war and Corinth was on the losing side. And so he burned the city to the ground and nobody inhabited it for about 100 years. And then in 44 AD, Julius Caesar, yes, that Julius Caesar, decided towards the end of his life to invest in Corinth and rebuild it as a city almost from nothing. There was no culture, there was no existing infrastructure, there was nothing there. And overnight, over a period of really about 70 years, it went from being the city where no one lived to becoming the city where everyone lived. And they built up buildings and infrastructure and people moved there. Uh, and they were moving in to do business and then moving out. Uh, and there were lots of different cultures moving together and it was an incredibly diverse place. You had people, you had uh, middle-class people, you had poor people, you had black people, you had white people. I mean, just all these people are all uh, descending on this city in a place that didn't used to exist. And as a result, there were two things that marked Corinth. Number one, as a culture, it was really transitory because people were coming in and out, trade routes, all that stuff. Uh, people moving there, people leaving, all that stuff. And number two, not only was it transitory, but it was a really self-centered place to live. In fact, in Greco-Roman culture, uh, there was developed a term for people who lived in Corinth. They had been Corinthianized. And you would say this, be careful going to Corinth or you might be Corinthianized. In other words, you might become a pretty self-centered person. Because Corinth was such a transitory place, because it was so diverse, and because this happened all so fast, uh, people were just trying to preserve themselves. There was a lot of self-preservation going on, just trying to kind of get theirs and move on, you know, keep their eye focused on work and go to home. And so everyone was really self-centered and self-focused. And it, it created just a really tense environment and, a, and frankly, a difficult place to plant a church, a difficult place to be a Christian. Have you noticed how similar, as I'm describing Corinth, how similar it sounds to Orlando? Centrally located on a peninsula in major trade routes. It's the city you have to go to if you're going from east to west, north to south, north to south. A city that grew up overnight. In 1950, Orlando had 51,000 people living in the city. 51,000, according to census data. Today, there's over 2 million people in the metro statistical era, area, right? Uh, overnight, it's grown over a period of 70 years. Disney moved here. Have you guys heard of Disney? Yeah, it brought a lot of people. There's lots of people moving here. Even just over the last 10 years, people are moving here from all over the U.S., all over Latin America and the Caribbean. They're all moving here. And in Orlando, it can create um, just a lot of tension. It's very transitory, and people can be really self-preserved and self-focused. And we all know this because we drive on the road with them, right? You're like, oh, that person's so selfish. As we're texting our friends driving, like, oh, man, maybe that's just me, right? Uh, Right? It's just tough. It's tough to live here. It could be a tough place to be a Christian. And so Paul wants to speak into this. He wants to remind us, listen, the world around us may be really tense. Orlando might be a really difficult place to navigate. It could be really challenging to figure out how to live. And that's okay. It's challenging to figure out how to navigate the social uh, uh, ladder and how to navigate the corporate ladder and how to, you know, make money and how to put your kids in the right schools. It can be really, really challenging. And all those things are true. And it's, it's tense and it, focuses just to, it forces us to focus on ourselves. But when we come together as the church, there's something different. It's a different location. The church, when we gather, is a different environment. There is, Paul is reminding us, a great freedom here to lean in to everything that Christ wants. 
There are two implications I think Paul is trying to say by repeating this phrase. Number one, don't be afraid when you gather with us to be a full-on Christian. Don't be afraid to wave at people in the hallway. If they wave to you, to wave back. Why? Because we're all gathering in the name of Christ. And don't be afraid to go sit on a new row and meet some new people. Why? Because we're not possessive of this. This isn't my seat. I didn't, you know, it doesn't have my name on it. We're, we're all here sharing this together, right? And, and don't be afraid to try out new classes and meet new people. And don't be afraid to see people in the coffee shop and say hi. And don't be afraid if someone looks like they need prayer to just pray for them. We have great freedom when we gather to be the church. This is a place, secondly, where Paul gives us great permission to live out the ideal. Remember, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a place when we gather to let heaven come to earth, to really live in the ideal of heaven. And Paul wants to remind us of that up front. That's the location. Where are we? We're in the church. It's a special place. But then Paul turns to the second thing, which I want you to notice is the problem. And here's the problem. Paul writes this. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And he's asking him, like, don't you have houses to live in? And he, he raises this question, which really gets at the heart of it. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What's the problem here? The problem is in this church that's supposed to be a model of heaven, that's supposed to be living the ideal of heaven, actually, um, it's not like heaven at all. In fact, it's much like the world of Corinth around it. There are people who are coming to church and they are excluding one another on the basis of favoritism, okay? They have certain people they like and certain people they're not so comfortable with and they're excluding one another based on that. And typically it tends to, in this case, break down on the people who have and the people who have not. The people who have are only congregating with the people who have and they're excluding people who have not. And they're creating this sense of rejection and humiliation for everybody who's present there. It just becomes a really awkward place that looks more like Corinth than it does the church. Now, just to give you some context here of the, the, the details going on, um, why are they eating a meal together? Well, it was common in that time period. Uh, remember, uh, there were not big church buildings like this. And so Christians had to meet in homes. And typically it's the wealthier people who own these homes. And so the way Christians gathered is they would, they would say, okay, we're going to meet at your house this weekend. And someone would have um, a home there and they'd have a table. And some wealthy people would bring wine and bread and have it present. And then everybody would bring a meal to gather. And that's how they had a worship service. It was just this, this meal, this agape meal, a love meal. And this is the way that they practice. Now, in most of... Roman, Greco-Roman society, when you had a common meal like this, it was a brown bag situation. Do you guys remember this brown bag? If you guys, do you guys understand this term? Basically everybody brings their own thing and you eat your own thing. So everybody shows up with their lunch boxes and you kind of open up and it's like a giant mystery. You're like, hey, what did we bring today, right? And you know, some people are bringing like really good stuff like steak and asparagus or you know, whatever. And then some people are bringing the PB and J and the chips and some people are bringing like a couple of cheese sticks, but th this is what it is. You just, whatever you bring, that's what you eat. This is how you had a common meal in Greco-Roman society. Well, Christians lived a little bit different. 
as Paul would plant these churches and as people would meet in homes, he would instruct them, hey, when you come together, make sure that everybody's taken care of, okay? Don't be selfish when you have this meal. And yet what's going on in Corinth is everybody is being selfish when they have the meal. One person is bringing a lot of food and enjoying it. Another person's bringing a little bit of food and trying to enjoy it. And still other people are showing up and they don't have anything. And then after you would have this meal, they would take the Lord's Supper together. But the people who brought the wine, they were jumping into the wine early, right? They got off work early and they didn't, you know, they didn't have, they weren't working hourly. And so they got there early. And so they just opened a bottle of wine with the host and they're enjoying some wine. And by the time everybody showed up, there wasn't much wine left. And so when they pass around the Lord's Supper, there's very, very little in the cup and sometimes not at all. So people were being excluded from the Lord's Supper because all the wine was gone and everybody's drunk. And you're in there with no food, hanging out with drunk people, and you don't even get to have the Lord's Supper. And this is supposed to be the church. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? And can you imagine if week after week, that was what you showed up to experience? It was just a dysfunctional, tense situation. And it looked more like the world than it did the church. And Paul is saying, this is a problem. You cannot go around humiliating one another and playing favorites. You can't say because you are wealthy and you have everything that you're excluding all these people from participating in the life of the community. Friends, there's nothing more devastating to our spiritual lives than the practice of favoritism. And here's what I mean by this. Favoritism is any time you place any other arbitrary category as more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you exclude people on the basis of that category. In short, it's anytime you say, I'm not hanging out with those Christians for this reason. I don't like those Christians because, you know, they speak a different language than me. Or I'm not going to fellowship with those Christians because they're a different color than me. Or I'm not going to fellowship with those Christians because they're in a different income bracket than I am. Or I'm not going to fellowship with those Christians because their kids go to that school and I don't like that school and we go to the rival school. So we're only going to clump together here in this little holy huddle and we're going to exclude all these other people. There is nothing more devastating for your spiritual life than to practice favoritism. And let me just give you two examples of this where we see this. This is not just a New Testament concept. This is a biblical concept. In the Old Testament, there's a story of the prophet Jonah. You guys remember the story? He gets swallowed by a whale, all that. Jonah is actually a story about the dangers of favoritism. God calls Jonah to go and be a prophet to the Ninevites. And Jonah doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh because he doesn't like Nineveh because they're the enemy. And he is um, excluding them from ministry because he doesn't like them. And God says, I need you to go there and preach the gospel. And Jonah says, no way, and runs the other way, jumps on a ship. It goes in a whole other direction. They throw him off the ship. A whale swallows them, spits him back on land. And when he comes to, the Lord says, are you ready to go to Nineveh now? And so Jonah begrudgingly goes to Nineveh and preaches the gospel. You can almost see it. He's like, yeah, so if you want to believe in Jesus, we're going to play, you know, how great thou art. If you want to walk the aisle, come on. And everybody gets up and walks the aisle and you can see him. He's like, darn it. Ugh, all these people are believing in Jesus. And he's angry. And there's this great revival that takes place. Nineveh is now trying to believe in God and follow him. And they're throwing a party and there's a celebration in the city. And where is Jonah? He's on the outside of the city, overlooking it, pouting on a hill. Why? Because he doesn't want the, Nineveh, the Ninevites to know Jesus. He doesn't want them to respond. He doesn't like them. He is trying to exclude them from his fellowship. 
There's nothing more devastating to your spiritual life than to exclude people from fellowship. Let me give you another example. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus tells a story about the prodigal son. And again, I think we're all familiar with it. But again, I think this is a, a great story about the dangers of exclusion and dangers of favoritism. You know this, the one younger son runs away. He takes all his inheritance. He spends it on wild living. He's incredibly sinful. And then when he's at his lowest point, he decides to come back to the father. And as he's walking up to the house, coming up with his sales pitch for why the father should let him back in, the father sees him and runs to meet him and covers him with a cloak and puts sandals on his feet and puts a ring on his finger, giving him purpose. And he welcomes him back into the family and he tells his servants to go kill a calf uh, and you know, put some uh, shrimp on the barbie or whatever, right? And just get a party ready because we're celebrating because my son was lost, but now he's found. And there's this great party going on and they're celebrating around a table and they're all sharing food together and celebrating. And where is the older brother? He's on the outside of the fellowship, pouting. And the father comes out to meet him and says, what's going on here? And with arms folded, he says, I cannot believe you've thrown a party for that son of yours. And he's using the most degrading, dismissive, exclusionary language he can. He is practicing favoritism. I will not fellowship with that son of yours because he is sinful and I am morally superior to him. And I cannot believe that you are throwing a fellowship with him. I will not enter and I will not fellowship with him. There is nothing more destructive to our spiritual lives than to practice this kind of exclusion and favoritism. And I'll tell you why. Because when we exclude fellowship from other people based on arbitrary categories, we number one, we dehumanize them and it makes it impossible for us to love our neighbor. And when we exclude people from fellowship, we tell God that we're better judges of people than he is, and therefore it makes, us, makes it really difficult to love God. And as a conclusion, we can neither love God nor love our neighbor, which is the greatest commandment. When Paul is talking to this church much later, he says this, I want you to remember what I've received from Christ. He says it twice. He says it in this chapter and then chapter 15. I want you to remember what I received from Jesus. And then he brings the gospel to bear on things. Jesus lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again from the dead. And because of that, we have access to the Father. In other words, he's reminding us of, of, of a, a profound truth here. And that's this. I know sometimes we like to think that we're better than other people and sometimes we feel like the older brother and sometimes we feel like Jonah, but in reality, we were all once sinners in need of salvation. There is nobody, not one, who was good enough to earn his or her way to the Father. Paul says later, uh, we are sinful, we are broken. There's none of us that's righteous, not even one. And so Jesus in his mercy had to come to us like the father and save us all. We are all the prodigals returning home to the father. We are all the Ninevites in need of someone to preach the gospel to us. And so when we gather here on Sunday, let us remember, this is a banquet for prodigals coming home. Everybody you see from the parking lot to the stage and back are prodigals coming home trying to find the Father. And the best thing we can do as we gather the body of Christ is we can welcome them into the party and save them a seat somewhere. We can wave to them in the hallway. We can pray for them. We can include them in our fellowship. And on that note, we've talked about the location, the problem. Let's talk about the solution. Paul says in verse 33, here's the solution, guys. What's the problem? The problem is this exclusive division, this um, favoritism we're practicing. What's the solution then? 
verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That term there, wait for one another, is probably better translated, share what you have with one another. Basically, what he's saying is wait till everybody gets there, everybody open up, look what everything is, and then pass it around and make sure everybody gets something. In Baptist world, we used to call this a potluck. You guys remember that? Okay, anybody in here ever been to a potluck before? Yep, Christians. Yep, you guys, y'all know what's up, right? This is what he's saying. Don't, don't just brown bag it and eat on your own. No, no, no. Wait till everybody shows up and then potluck it. Share, make sure everybody has something. Make sure everybody is including. Now, why does Paul say this? What is it about sharing as a practice that undermines our tendency to be self-centered? What is it about sharing that diffuses our tendency to exclude people? What is it about sharing that it does for our soul? Well, Jesus in Luke 14 is addressing this thing. And by the way, I would just say, for the record, just look at how often Jesus speaks very strongly about meals and about the gospel. For him, they're always <laughs> interrelated. But more on that next week when Pastor David talks about the Lord's Supper. Anyway, uh, Luke 14, there's this great story. Jesus uh, goes to the house of a Pharisee. And we kind of think maybe this Pharisee didn't like Jesus. But, you know, this is Jesus' thing. He would come into a city and people would go, Jesus, that guy's the worst sinner ever. And Jesus is like, I'm having a party with him later. And he immediately goes and invites him into his house or goes to his house and has a party. And this is what's happening. He is at this Pharisee's house having a meal with all of these people. And the Pharisee's mind is just spinning. And Jesus tells a story about the great banquet and says that the kingdom of heaven's like a banquet and you know you go out and you invite the rich people first and they have a lot of excuses and so the master of the banquet says go out and find the poor people and the people in the margins and the, the lame and the blind and bring them in and provide them a seat at the table this is what the kingdom is like this is why when we gather we just we bring everybody in this is why we share and noticing that the Pharisee is kind of not, not quite absorbing it all Jesus turns to the Pharisee in whose house he's meeting quite bold of him and he says this, Luke 14, he says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But then when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's Jesus saying to them? When you share, you will be blessed. That term is better translated probably happy. There's something about sharing your heart, about sharing your life, about sharing a meal with other people, specifically ones who can never repay you, that will make you happy. I was thinking about this principle and, you know, I was thinking back to when I was in grad school. About 15 years ago, uh, I was in grad school in Chicago and went to this international school. And so all my colleagues are from like Africa and China and Japan and Europe and Latin America. And it was just this really great time. But, you know, we're in grad school. Um, you know, it's not like there's a lot of money in grad school, right? So we were all kind of trying to work and trying to make ends meet. And we didn't all have a lot of money. And so we didn't have a lot of time to go do fun things. Uh, uh, like, you know, you know, fun things in Chicago. And Chicago is a pretty fun city. Um, and so we were just working and going to school and working and going to school. And with my colleagues, whenever we'd get together and, and hang out, we would, we would talk about theology, but we'd also talk about basketball. 
because we just, I, I love basketball and I'm in Chicago, the city of Michael Jordan, and we all loved Michael Jordan. And we would just sit around and talk about Michael Jordan and talk about basketball. And we would say, man, it'd be so fun if we could ever go to a game there, right? But none of us could ever afford tickets. We could never go. And so, plus we had grad school and we had deadlines and it was just a whole thing. Well, my last year of being in grad school, I got my first job, like my first full-time job with benefits. And let me just tell you, this was like a windfall of cash, right? Just getting paid every two weeks. I was like, what is this richness I've stepped into? Oh my goodness. There was like a bank deposit where I didn't have to go cash a check. It just went into my bank account. And I was like, magic, what is happening? And I remember after we, Natalie and I had received a couple of paychecks, we thought, man, we've, you know, we've really got a lot of money now. What should we do with this? And there were plenty of things we could do, right? We could buy a couch or we could, you know, update our wardrobe or we could just save for something or we could go on a vacation or, you know, there's lots of things we could do to kind of take care of us because we were working pretty hard and we weren't enjoying a lot of luxuries at that time period. And we're like, okay, what should we do with this? And so uh, one of the things we came up with is, man, we should go to a basketball game. And so we looked online or whatever the thing was at the time, and we found out that essentially two tickets to a Chicago Bulls basketball game were the exact same as four tickets to a Chicago Bulls basketball game. They were doing this promotion, buy two, get two free or whatever. And we we're like, okay, man, we should definitely, like four is better than two. We did the math. Uh, we should get the four and we should go to this game. We should take people with us. And we we're like, man, who should we take uh, to this game here? What, how would that work? And we thought about some friends and then it occurred to me, I had a friend a colleague from West Africa, and I had a friend from China. And neither of them would ever have the money or the ability to even be transported down to the United Center to go to this game. And so we said, man, what if we brought them to the game with us? Like, okay, that's great. So I went and I told them, I was like, hey, can you go to this game? And they said, yes, we would love to go to the game. And so we got the tickets and it was great. And so I thought, okay, man, we're gonna go to this game and we're planning for it. And I said, hey, we gotta go to the mall because I don't have any Chicago Bulls swag, right? I don't, I don't have a Chicago Bulls shirt. Uh, I need a jersey. Derrick Rose was the rookie of the year. And I was like, man, I'm gonna go get a Derrick Rose jersey. Yeah, and so we get to the mall or whatever and I see the Derrick Rose jerseys and I see the price and I go, oh my goodness, like this is really expensive. But you know, I, I, have, a, I have a job now. I, I I should take care of myself. I should, you know, I should buy this jersey for myself and keep it in a closet or put it in a plaque in my office or something like that, right? You know, I've earned it. I've worked hard, all these things. And we're looking at the price and it was more expensive than any single item of clothing that I'd ever purchased before for myself. And, but I was like, I'm gonna do it. And then we had this moment where we said, I don't wanna show up and be the only one in a jersey. I'm bringing these other guys with me from other countries and they probably don't have any bull swag. And I had this moment where I had to wrestle. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm thinking about buying them jerseys too. Like, okay, and you know, I'm, I'm checking with Dave Ramsey. Can I do this? Uh, do I have an envelope fund, Dave, for this? It's like, oh man, but you know, that could be, you know, 14 more date nights or, you know, a trip to Cancun or something for this price tag. Oh, but I was like, you know what? Like, I, I don't want to show up and be the only one in a jersey. I don't want them to feel second class in this event. And so I bought multiple Derrick Rose jerseys for everybody. I'm like calling them, hey, what's your size? I want to make sure it's not too small. And we got, we got the jerseys. And so on the day, I was driving down because I think I was the only one with the car. And so the guys met in the parking lot and they walked inside. And I got to be like Oprah. I was like, everybody gets a jersey, right? They step into the car and they're putting on the jerseys. We're taking photos. We're like, man, this is great. We drive an hour down into Chicago and we go and they're hungry and I just, again, I felt the Lord say, hey, Doug, you should pay for everybody to eat food. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so expensive. I didn't know that loving people would be so expensive, right? Is there a cheaper way, Jesus, to love people? I want that way. 
Uh, yeah, so we went, we got food, we went to the game, and it was a great game. And we got in the car and we're driving home. It's cold in Chicago, snowbanks everywhere. And this, at one point, they just looked at me and they said, Doug, this is one of the greatest days of my life. Thank you. And, and in my heart, you can, you can clap for that. But, but make sure you're clear. Don't, don't clap for me. I, I'm not a good person here. I'm the guy haggling over dollars and like checking with Dave Ramsey, okay? I'm looking for the discount budget way to bless people. But I felt God say something to me. Doug, no, this is one of the best days of your life. Because they would have never gotten to experience this otherwise. They would have never gotten to share in this. You see, what Jesus says is this, when you come together, as the church, share with one another. And in so doing, and in so doing, you will be blessed. Why? Well, number one, because it'll erode our sense of self-dependency and make us fully dependent on God. But number two, because it'll remind us at the end of the day that we're all prodigals coming home for the Father for the first time. And when that happens, we get to celebrate together as a gathering. We get to be a pipe, not a bucket. And so I want to conclude here by offering a challenge and a reminder. Okay, here's the challenge. The challenge is this. What if over the next couple of weeks you tried to have a real agape meal wherever you gather? In your group, at your home, wherever. What if you had an agape meal? You did potluck style. You invited some people. You took the Lord's Supper together. And then you sang a hymn together to conclude. I want to challenge us to practice that. Again, in groups, uh, in friendships, however you do it. And if this is something that you're interested in, but you say, man, I don't know. I've never really done this before. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't take the class on Agape Meals. That wasn't my thing. We put a resource together for you. You can text SUPPER to 40777, and we'll give you a script and some instructions on how to facilitate that. What if we all gather together and practice this very thing Paul was talking about? so that we could see and experience the joy that Jesus wants to bring to us when we share with one another. That's the challenge. Here's the reminder. Next week, right here, we're going to have our celebration. Pastor David's going to teach on the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to get reports on uh, what came out of our uh, uh, process of generosity, and it's going to be fantastic. You're not going to want to miss it. And so I want to pray for us, and then I want to dismiss us to go enjoy the Lord's day so we can come back together next week and celebrate. So let me pray for us. Jesus, make us shares of everything with everyone we know for your glory and our good and the good of this city that we love. It's in Jesus' name that we all pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You guys have a great Lord's week. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.